Hey everyone, well, welcome to Stutter Talk at episode 679. Our lives are not on hold, the medical treatment of stuttering. I'm Peter Reitzis, your host, and I'm here with Dr. Gerald McGuire. Hey, Dr. Hey, McGuire. Uh, hey there, Peter. Thank so, so thank you very much for, uh, for inviting me back on Stutter Talk. I appreciate it. Oh, it's our pleasure. It's our honor. And you're joining us today from your backyard in California. So we might have a few birds visiting, which is uh, kind of awesome. All right. Thank you very much, Peter. Dr. McGuire is professor and chair of psychiatry and neuroscience at UC Riverside School of Medicine and board chair of the National Stuttering Association. Dr. McGuire is considered by many to be the leading expert in the medical treatment of stuttering. And before we jump into the medical treatment of stuttering, I I just want to share with you that the National Stuttering Association uh, at WeStutter.org, a few days ago, they had a a parent's Zoom room where parents of kids who stutter came together online to laugh, to chat, and connect with other parents. And I'm just so glad. I want to thank you, uh, you and the NSA, for pursuing such online support during this challenging time. Well, thank you so much, Peter. And uh, I also want to thank you at Stutter Talk uh, for bringing the stuttering, the stuttering co- co- community to, to gather. As we know, uh, we might be social distancing, but that doesn't mean that we in the stuttering community need to socially isolate. So I thank you for everything that you're doing. And I want to thank all my colleagues at the National Stuttering Association for all the great work that uh, that they are doing as well. Well said, well said. And just to remind listeners, the National Stuttering Association's Manhattan chapter is offering a virtual support group, and we will have a link to the Manhattan chapter of the NSA in these show notes at episode 670. Nine, and you can follow the National Stuttering Association on Facebook and at WeStutter.org. Um, so you had an article published just today uh, re- related to the medical treatment of stuttering, and we're going to be talking about that today. Um, and in this article, you report that there are two active medications under patent uh, ha- help me pronounce them. Echo Pipam. Uh, how, yeah, how do you see them? It's like Eco Pipam. Okay, and what's yeah. the second one? Do Tetrabenazine. <laughs> okay, Eco Pipam yeah. and Do Tetrabenazine, and uh, they are currently going through clinical trials with the hope of eventually being FDA approved for stuttering. Where do things stand now with these two pharmaceuticals? Okay, great. Well, so. Ecopipam, we published in August a pilot study. That medicine is not on the market. So different than dutetrabenazine, which is already on the market for other conditions. There's a lot of news right now about off-label, right? Or So dutetrabenazine is uh, available already in pharmacies uh, in the United States, uh, but it's approved for other conditions. It's approved for the treatment of a movement disorder called tardidyskinesia and for movements associated with Huntington's Korea. So we'll be starting a single-site study here at UC Riverside on the effects of that medication and the treatment of stuttering. They've already published uh, positive data on the treatment of uh, 
Tourette's disorder with that, uh, that medication. With Ecopipam, that medication is not FDA approved for anything yet. It's still an investigational medicine, not just in stuttering, but in where uh, it's also being studied in the treatment of uh, Tourette's disorder as well. Uh, where dutetrabenazine acts as uh, differently than the other medications we've studied in stuttering in the past, it acts as a VMAT2 inhibitor, which means it's going to deplete the dopamine in the synapse, like in the communication, not as a, an antagonist or blocker to the dopamine 2 receptor, where we've studied other medications in the past, such as olanzapine, risperidone, eripiprazole, etc., so that's a different mechanism, uh, should not be associated with the, uh, and it's already on the market and it's being prescribed already for people with other conditions. Uh, we're hearing a lot about this, right, with COVID where they're looking at medicines that are off-label for its use. So, so do tetrabenazine is already available, but for these other conditions and has not been adequately yet studied in stuttering, but it's not associated with some of the side effects we see with the dopamine 2 blockers, such as uh, weight gain, for instance, or elevation. And tell us about e Echopipam. Yeah, so that agent is a dopamine 1 antagonist. So it's not on the market. We don't have a dopamine 1 receptor antagonist on the market uh, anywhere in the world. Uh, the other medicines we've studied are do dopamine 2 blockers. So with Echopipam, uh, it acts... Uh, at a different receptor. It's the published positive data so far in stuttering uh, and in Tourette's disorder. Uh, it, uh, our first study just looked at an open-label design in a, a relatively few number of patients showed a, a positive signal. And from there, we've developed uh, into now our plans for a multi-center study. Uh, we've submitted that plan uh, to the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, which has approved our multicenter protocol to begin. So hopefully this is the next study that we'll do uh, will be the first of two uh, that would be submitted to the FDA with a goal of an FDA indication for the treatment of the treatment but of it, it's stuttering. All good. So you said you said that echopipam is a dopamine one blocker. So I got a two part question for you. Can you please remind the listeners why that's important? Like what's the theory about why dopamine impacts stuttering and what's a dopamine one blocker doing? Okay, great. So we've studied um, through imaging scans and through others with work looking at genetics uh, and uh, uh, some background on the neuro circuitry of stuttering that we believe that the basal ganglia, uh, which is a, a region of the brain, uh, can control the timing and initiation of speech. And this is in relation to other regions of the brain that are involved, say in the cortex and uh, other regions. Uh, dop dopamine is a, uh, a naturally occurring neurochemical uh, that is rich in this region of the brain that we believe uh, controls the timing and initiation of speech. Uh, so with that, by altering uh, the dopamine activity in that region of the brain, we're hopeful we can uh, lead to uh, improved uh, 
stutter, uh, improved symptoms of stuttering with uh, improved uh, timing, initiation, decreasing the severity of the blocks uh, and the duration of the blocks and the, uh, uh, the frequency of the stuttering events as well, too. So how Ecopipam is different, it works on a different receptor where we have published in the article that we just publishes a review article going through the past of the pharmacology of stuttering, reviewing uh, the different studies that have been done over the years, not just from our research group here at UC Riverside, but from others as well. And what's of note is that every study uh, that's been published of a dopamine 2 receptor blocking agent has shown positive results in stuttering, not just at our group, but other groups and groups that uh, preceded us here at UC Riverside. Uh, so there, there's something there. We need more research with it. Uh, and the, all those agents worked at the dopamine 2 receptor. There's some thought that when dopamine 2 uh, acts, there is some potential for some movement disorders where individuals can develop a uh, long-term um, risk of a condition called tardive dyskinesia, which is abnormal motions or movements uh, in their uh, tongue or fingers or toes, or uh, even uh, 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 the potential of uh, risk of sedation and uh, weight gain uh, from these agents. Some have a greater risk of these side effects than, uh, than other agents in the class. The dopamine one agent, uh, based on that mechanism, would not have a risk of the movement disorders and have a uh, not be associated with the risk of weight gain. We are mindful, though, um, that dopamine 1 can be involved uh, if the blockade of that receptor, we're hopeful, will show that we are improving stuttering symptoms. Uh, but there's a potential since dopamine is involved in the reward system and mood regulation, we're going to be mindful and we're going to uh, watch our, our subjects in the study closely uh, for the potential risks of any depression or anything like that. Uh, so we're going we're gonna to keep a close eye on that. Yeah, and I'll let the listeners know that the two articles you're discussing will be uh, right now, they're available in full online. So the links for them will be at Stutter Talk episode 679. And they're really short and digestible and well-written. So I encourage people to sit down with them because they can be a quick read and you won't need a dictionary for most of it. So, so congratulations on that. Thank you very, very much, Peter. I appreciate it. So from your Echo Pipam study, and it was a small study, I think there were 10 subjects. I'm just going to read a short finding where you all wrote, participants with moderate stuttering made significant gains in overall stuttering severity as rated by the SS. The two participants with very severe stuttering showed minimal games in overall severity. So again, I I know it's a small subject base, but it sounds like your study only included what you might call moderate to severe stuttering, those who noticeably stutter a lot. Why did the study not include what um, might be a more covert stutter? And what does that finding tell you that, that I just read? Great thought. So that's a preliminary finding uh, as well, just on 10 subjects. So Moving forward, we have plans for a multi-center study that include uh, close to 100 subjects in a double-blind 
placebo-controlled study at sites around the country, around the United States. Um, we were looking at getting going with, with this as early as next month. Of course, with COVID, that uh, may be delayed a bit. Um, but uh, with that, we will include, just like in this last study, just people with moderate to uh, uh, more severe symptoms. Unfortunately, based upon the study design uh, and how you measure stuttering with, and I've worked closely with various different colleagues like Scott Yaris and uh, and consulting with Mark Onslow in Australia and Ross Menzies and others. Uh, at this point, we're capturing the effect of the medication itself uh, on different scales, including the SSI-4, the OACs, the subjective stuttering scale, a social anxiety scale. So we're still exploratory. And if an individual has just a mild effect say, on stuttering severity as measured by the SSI-4 on frequency and duration um, and with the variability of stuttering, we wouldn't be able to pick up the effect of the medication versus placebo with just a mild effect. Uh, there wouldn't, it would be difficult to pick up that level of change if the stuttering frequency and duration is uh, mild. So working with the FDA and others, we've uh, set that bar at moderate to severe patients in order uh, to be able to uh, effectively uh, perceive and, and measure and metric a change in stuttering severity that, that can occur. Of course, with this next study, we're also going to measure some other aspects, which will be really interesting to see, such as like social anxiety, um, avoidance, quality of life, because we know that that can, is in many respects, uh, much more important on a person's life who stutters uh, rather than uh, the duration and frequency of the stuttering itself. So we're going to measure across multiple uh, areas uh, with that, Peter. And so uh, in this finding of just seeing a couple of more severe patients not uh, responding, that could just be unique. It was a small, we'll have to test it in a larger group. Everybody uh, can uh, metabolize a medication di di differently. I also think we're going to find that um, that just like with the other medications, not everyone's going to show a positive response. Uh, and our, our goal in this next phase of the study is to do, uh, and we will be doing um, with some of our sites, some genetics work and some brain imaging work uh, that will hopefully be able to predict who would be a responder to this medication and who won't be. And then also as we build to the next uh, more elaborate study after the smaller double-blind placebo-controlled study, be able to enrich that sam sample to show, uh, you know, who are the individuals who may actually uh, be candidates for this type of treatment and how best do we adequately assess stuttering improvement, uh, not just on uh, uh the fluency scores, if I may use that term, but uh, really on what we all believe are more uh, important measures, say, of the quality of life of the individual. Mm, it's really important. So you're you're saying that you're interested in in measuring uh, the re the possible reduction of stuttering and also the reduction of the negative impact of stuttering. Exactly. And we're looking at the quality of life of these individuals and just see, you know, if we see something with a medication, of course, what we're hopeful for is our dream study long term is if we see an effect of the medication itself, that's our first step. But if beyond that, we know 
Uh, and this is what I'm uh, proposing uh, in a uh, more robust article in the future. And uh, what we'd like to present, we've submitted this to the Oxford Disfluency uh, Conference, my colleagues uh, with uh, Lisa LaSalle at University of Redlands and Drs. Uh, Mark Onslow and Ross Menzies from uh, University of uh, Technology, Sydney, is to really propose that uh, the future treatment of stuttering would be uh, uh, an interprofessional approach because we believe that adding all these together, focusing on the cognitive behavioral aspects, looking at avoidance uh, for individuals, the, the social anxiety uh, that can be so uh, disabling for individuals who stutter, uh, combining that with medications, combining that with speech therapy. I'm hopeful eventually, uh, you know, we're going to, we're, we're proposing this model uh, and uh, that we'll be able to show that that would be the uh, the ideal treatment for, for those who, who seek out treatment uh, to have a combination uh, of those approaches. I believe they'll have a synergistic effect, just like what we see in social anxiety disorder treatment for people without stuttering uh, or for people with obsessive compulsive disorder. We know that combining talk therapy uh, and medications often have a synergistic effect where they work better together than they uh, by either treatment by itself. Uh, we also know that the importance of, uh, spe of uh, social uh, networking and uh, support groups are very important in these other conditions. We already uh, believe that in stuttering. There's some good data as well that groups, the support groups as offered, say, through the National Stuttering Association, uh, provide a tremendous benefit for people who stutter. Uh, and that we know that um, acceptance of stuttering is, is, is paramount and important uh, and that uh, acceptance is not mutually exclusive of acceptance of treatment, that every individual should be given their own choice and, and providing that choice of treatment and, and that acceptance is, is paramount uh, to uh, any uh, step going forward. This is Stutter Talk. I'm Peter Reitzes here with Dr. Gerald McGuire. Dr. McGuire is professor and chair of psychiatry and neuroscience at UC Riverside School of Medicine and board chair of the National Stuttering Association. I love the points that you just made. It is all about the, the choices of the person who stutters. Um, so uh, moving on a little bit from Echo Pipam, I just have a few general questions I'd love to ask you. Um, so who is seeking medical treatment for stuttering with you? Is it men? Is it women? Is it people who stutter with co-occurring problems such as depression? Is there a certain age group that calls you the most? Like, What's the broad view here? The broad view here is that anybody is calling me, and I get emails from people every day from all over the world wanting help. Uh, there's only so many that we could reach. Fortunately now, uh, one positive aspect of COVID is we could do telemedicine visits across state lines. That wasn't allowed before, but now we can. Uh, oh, I, I didn't know that. Yeah, is is a, that a California law or is that a national? It's, it's a national. 
Uh, it, I well, didn't know that. The, the, the government is allowing this to happen. And, of course, we're still waiting for some of the different state medical boards to uh, chime in. But also that with COVID, they're actually allowing telemedicine to be a covered benefit for people with the federal insurance Medicare. So this is a it's a big it's a big movement. Um, for, before we were just limited to providing telepsychiatry in California, but with this, uh, I believe it's being relaxed now where we could uh, actually uh, provide this care across state lines. I have people contacting me every day, um, some from outside the uh, United States wanting help, uh, saying, you know, keep going forward, keep pushing for us. We're the, we're the silent majority out there that, that needs help. Uh, and so I push on. Many of the people who come to see me primarily just have stuttering, but many of them are especially drawn because they might be having disabling social anxiety, um, comorbid or coexisting uh, depression as well. Uh, and some of the younger uh, children or adolescents we see, uh, and you know this from your speech pathology uh, realm, Peter, is that Children who stutter may have existing attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, and oftentimes the medications for that condition can make stuttering worse. So we provide our expertise in the care of those children and adolescents as well. Uh, I tend not to treat younger children with medications unless they've been through speech therapy for a period of time. and are not responding or they have a coexisting condition, say like ADHD, where they are getting treatment uh, at a young age because of their schooling and activities, but it may be impacting. And of course, uh, all of these I um, subjects, I work closely uh, with a speech language pathologist working very closely with a uh, Lauren uh, McGill uh, out here in California, uh, and uh, we do our best to help. I also work closely with Lisa LaSalle at the University of Redlands uh, and uh, in uh, providing this care. Uh, I'm looking forward to the National Studying Association being in my backyard this year in uh, Orange County, California. We're still a go. We want to uh, get everybody together in uh, early uh, June. July, and I'll have a workshop there with uh, individuals that Lauren and I have uh, treated in our practices together who uh, have sought help for their stuttering, but may have other uh, issues uh, going on as well. And just having them talk openly about their ADHD, their anxiety, their um, depression that brought them under our care. Hmm. Well, let's hope you can move forward with the conference. Thank Um, you. I hope so too. So at this time, what pharmaceuticals, and I know the FDA has not approved anything to treat stuttering, but at this time, off-label wise, what's the, what pharmaceuticals do you find yourself prescribing the most for the medical treatment of stuttering? Well, we tend to, based upon the side effect profile uh, and as well as the cost, um, medications like aripiprazole uh, is uh, uh, inexpensive. It's covered under most insurance plans. Uh, it has a little better tolerability profile on weight gain and adverse events, uh, say, compared to a olanzapine or a risperidone. So we tend to go there, start there. It's also on label f- uh, for the use in Tourette's disorder in kids. Uh, so it's a, a safe medication. It's been on the market for a uh, 
tw- almost 20 years now. Uh, it's uh, in a, a generic form, so uh, it's not expensive. Uh, we tend to utilize that medication first line for patients who need assistance. It is associated with some restlessness, some uh, um, potential uh, increase in this motor restlessness called akathisia that can mimic anxiety. So we have to be monitored for that. It is on label for uh, the treatment of depression, Tourette's disorder as well. Uh, So it it depends on how the individual presents. If they've got coexisting depression, that medication may be good along with an antidepressant medication. With social anxiety, we may approach that first and then go with a medication that's more targeted at stuttering. We tend to choose based upon cost and tolerability profile. Uh, And then at times we may go with a medication called uh, Lurgan. Razadone, we published a positive study on that about two years ago. Um, it is more expensive, though. Uh, it's more limited on insurance. It's still a brand name medication. So uh, that necessarily isn't usually our first line. But for individuals who may have some weight gain issues or diabetes, instead of using a medication that's more um, uh, that's cheaper, uh, like in olanzapine, uh, or a risperidone, we can go with this medication, but, and usually then the insurance would actually pay for it because of the coexisting medical conditions that the patient may have. Hmm. So it's not an easy answer. I, I can't say that one that one size fits all. Yeah. Sure. So I, I'm just going to reflect that when you first started coming on Stutter Talk, I was not a parent, um, and and now I'm a parent, and. I have been amazed at how well some medications help our children. Uh, I'm not talking about with stuttering, but I'm saying it's just uh, between uh, a child of mine at home and some of my students at school, some of these attention deficit medications are life-changing. They I mean, are. And it's, it's, it's remarkable. It's right. And then when the kid does well in school and then... As you know, Peter, there are reports that sometimes these medications can make stuttering worse. So we want to keep that child doing well in school. Uh, and uh, that's where the parents will seek our help. Uh, and we examine the child. And sometimes we have to add a medication onto the ADHD medication to counter the uh, negative effects. But there are some patients uh, where the stimulants that are commonly used for ADHD do not worsen stuttering. They don't need our help uh, or even some rare cases where the stimulant can treat stuttering. That's why I think that we're not going to show one medication fits all for all patients. That I think stuttering is a uh, family of conditions uh, that may have a, a, a common pathway in symptoms, but just like not one antihypertensive for high blood pressure works for blood pressure in everybody. We have to try different things and hopefully um, soon in the medical field, not just in stuttering, we'll be able to do genetic tests or other imaging tests to show which medication you might respond to uh, rather than a trial and error approach that we do, not just in, in stuttering right now, which is still in its infancy, but even for conditions we've treated for years in the medical field, like high blood pressure, we still often do a trial and error approach. We try the medicine that's tolerable, that's effective, uh, that's cost effective first. And if that doesn't work, we have to change course. 
Yeah. In one of the articles I read of yours today, I don't think you came out and said that directly, but that was a, a take-home point where I kind of thought, oh, it looks like they're looking at using brain imaging to suggest possible treatments, um, which I thought was fascinating. Exactly. And, uh, yeah. yeah, exactly. And uh, wow. partnering with our colleagues who are doing great work in this, like Dr. Suwon Chang and Dr. Shelley Joe Kraft and others as to, you know, the, the work that they're doing and being able to predict who may respond to different sorts of treatments and then bringing that into the medication world as well. Well, it's really interesting that you say Dr. Suwon Chang, because after I read the studies you sent me, I sent her an email. And I said, let's let's get you back on Stutter Talk because I was reviewing some of her studies because you were reviewing some of her studies. So uh, it's fascinating stuff going on. Uh, it so, is, you know, and, and I yeah. feel I feel good about that. I think stuttering research is in a great place, um, and uh, I, I'm so thankful we have so many great colleagues who are working on the uh, work from imaging and genetics. And I'm so thankful to be part of this group. And uh, I, I have bright hopes for stuttering in the future, uh, being able to help people uh, more and more. That's great. And I, I, when I read one of your studies today or, or papers, I got this sense. Uh, so re regarding Pagaclone, which you had researched extensively, I got this sense you thought you might you might have underdosed paglicone in the exactly. studies. Yeah, yeah. Great thought. So what we're doing with this study is we're using a higher dose strategy uh, and a flexible dose strategy uh, to determine at a higher dose, middle dose, or lower dose as we move on uh, and based upon the weight of the patient and the tolerability of the patient to identify that ideal dose. In paglicone, we did a, essentially a fixed dose study, and then we realized that there was a minority of subjects in those studies who did really well um, and wanted to stay on the medication and it had a marked effect, but across the group effect, we didn't see it. Um, I will say this on the primary endpoint, which is the percentage of syllables stuttered. What was hidden in Pagaclone, and because we went with the FDA that the primary endpoint would be the percentage of syllables stuttered, we showed a marked improvement in those studies on social anxiety. Uh, but that's not what we set forth with the FDA. And at that point, if you remember, uh, we had a tremendous economic downturn uh, and the funding stopped. So we could not go forth with the next study, which would have been probably a higher dose is what I was going to push for. Uh, and that we changed the efficacy endpoint with the FDA to look specifically at social anxiety and stuttering. That medication works differently than Ecopipam, Aripiprazole, Olanzapine, Risperidone, other agents that we've tested, and that it worked on the GABA system. GABA is very much involved in anxiety, uh, and that's why I think we saw a very strong effect on social anxiety uh, on those uh, studies. Now, Pagaclone never made it to FDA approval for any condition. Uh, its patent is over, and unfortunately, this is uh, a system in the healthcare uh, who would fund those studies to get it approved because there's not a dollar to be made at the end of the day. Um, but I do believe, based upon other uh, modeling work that we were doing, that we should have pushed the dose higher. We were all set to do another higher dose study to see its effect on stuttering, specifically on social anxiety and stuttering, and then... Uh, the economic collapse back then about 11 years ago, and uh, the funding just dried up. So I'm glad you brought up the funding, because I'm curious, you in your papers, you go through the different 
pharmaceuticals that have been studied and that are used uh, off-label. Why do you think there has been no FDA-approved medication for the medical treatment of stuttering? Well, only one has ever been submitted uh, to go through the trials, and, and that was Pagaclone. Um, and uh, I, I talk about a little bit in my recent article. You know, it takes hundreds of millions of dollars to invest in a medication. So even though we've shown efficacy, say, of uh, the medication olanzapine uh, and stuttering, uh, and that data is very strong. Not only did we show a positive study of olanzapine in the United States, but a group in Iran uh, has done two studies showing efficacy of that agent, showing it, uh, it improves stuttering in the majority of patients treated. Uh, however, um, it's already off patent. So it's generic. It could be pennies a pill, uh, and no one will submit the filing with the FDA any com- company to get it FDA approved uh, because there's uh, no way they could recoup the funding of the filing fees and the studies that would need to be done to get that FDA approval. So it's so what we have to do is look for medicines that have a patent life um, to submit to the FDA to get that FDA indication or else people could just uh, prescribe them and there's no money. I, it's, a, it's a cruel system that we have, not just in the United States, but the whole world. Every country has that to get, say, a medication approved in the EU or whatever. It's that same element that people have to submit all that. Um, and also, I think what we ran into for so long, and we're still running into this a little bit, I will share this with you. When I was at the FDA back about uh, 2007 or eight. Uh, with Pagaclone um, presenting that protocol and saying to them, these are the leaders of our government agency, why we need a medication uh, for stuttering for people. Um, the response from one person was like, well, doesn't everybody stutter? Uh, why do we need a medication for this? Uh, so there's still people who don't understand that people's quality of lives can be impacted by stuttering. And what's the point? You know, uh, everybody stutters to some extent and no one dies of it. So why do we need to get a medication for it? Why should we invest uh, our resources into this condition? We have medicines that are FDA approved for Tourette's disorder, which is less common than stuttering. Uh, So I think this is where we in the stuttering community, we need to speak up to the agencies and the government say, yeah, we need to be heard. We need to be the advocates ourselves for research into stuttering. Fortunately, it's growing more. But uh, just like I I say that there's 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 a movement uh, for this and uh, that we, the folks who are impacted by this the most, should really be the ones who are vocal to say, yeah, we not only do we need advocacy and we need better treatment from uh, employers and, and academic institutions to understand our stuttering and not to discriminate against us, but at the same thing, we need an advocacy that research should be supported into how to help people who stutter, be that with medications, be that with speech therapy, be that with psychotherapy, be that with support groups. We need to be the advocates there. Mm, those are wonderful points. And I have a question I want to ask you that just popped into my head. So I've never even Googled it. 
So, uh, excuse me if it's coming from left field. Um, but, but I'm curious, aside from pharmaceuticals, are there other things such as exercise or certain foods that one can eat that have been found to be dopamine blocking? Uh, well, I don't know about dopamine blocking, but, um, let's see from nutraceuticals, at least from GABAnergic, there are some, uh, there's been a couple case reports of a GABA compound that may help anxiety and stuttering. It was, uh, studied over in, uh, Russia called Phenibut, P-H-E-N-I-B-U-T. Uh, I've never seen a, a, a really, I can't help people run out there and get it. Um, I, we do, do know that, Exercise regulates the dopamine serotonin tract and help with depression. Um, I will say this, just in my years of treating people who stutter, uh, now going on close to 30 years, that getting a regular night's sleep um, is important. Uh, stressing uh, uh, and decreasing anxiety. We do know that serotonin is released when we exercise, uh, and uh, we know that anxiety uh, is uh mediated in some part by serotonin, uh, and that uh, if our anxiety levels are higher, we people who stutter tend to do a little worse. So I would suggest that getting a good night's sleep every night, having a proper exercise program, certainly don't hurt your overall health. And I think just based on my experience can help people who stutter as well. Yeah. So, so we recorded an episode, um, uh, I guess about a week ago where I talked to Haya Goldstein and we talked about things that people who stutter can do right now to help themselves. And the first thing I suggested was exercise. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and I think it's for great. me, it just, it just helped across the board. It helped. I, I, and I, I kicked myself for not saying it on air, but confidence, like I just felt so much better about myself. Well, I think that's so important too, as well. Is that is where, uh, the confidence, uh, and that quality of life of people who stutter is so important. The acceptance is really step one. And that's where we at the National Stuttering Association, what you are doing at Stutter Talk uh, in decreasing the stigma, increasing the understanding for people who stutter. I thank you so much, Peter. This is so important. Uh, these programs did not exist 30, 30 years ago. Uh, I wish uh, Stutter Talk was around when uh, I was in my formative years and uh, middle school and then in high school and college uh, to know that there was help. Unfortunately, uh, I found still in my training the National Stuttering Project, which be which became the NSA. And uh, I'm eternally grateful to folks like John Albeck and Mike Sugarman, who uh, who who helped me back then uh, and allowed me to uh, you know step forth in my career as a professor and as a psychiatrist, uh, really the most verbal field of medicine and not to stay away from that. Um, so acceptance is so important. So support, the confidence, it's, that's what it's all about. And to decrease the stigma is very important. And if, if I'm hopeful that as we understand more and more about the biologic aspects of stuttering, that will increase acceptance of the world of people around us that they should not discriminate against us because uh, it's not simply that this is in our heads is that we're anxious pe people, that there's actually an underlying medical reason as to why we stutter uh, and that you should not discriminate against us. And we, there should not be the stigma against us as well, too, as we know more and more that this is a brain disorder uh, that can be uh, uh, helped uh, and treated. 
um, and uh, through various different means, and people should not be discriminated against because they stutter. This is Stutter Talk. My guest today is Dr. Gerald McGuire, Professor and Chair of Psychiatry and Neuroscience at UC Riverside School of Medicine and Board Chair of the National Stuttering Association, which can be found at westutter.org. You brought up so many great points there. Uh, I'll just mention that I recently saw, and it had to be canceled, unfortunately, because of the virus, but there was a one-day stuttering workshop planned by friends at at, at the University of Delaware, I think. Uh, and I'm from Delaware. And I just, you know, I was like, wow, a stuttering workshop in Delaware? That I mean, I got chills. Um, yeah. yeah. It's, it's just, it's amazing, like, what growth there has been. So I'm, I'm thankful for the stuttering support we have. And, and um, looking back as a kid, I just, we didn't have any of it. No, we didn't have it. I'm so thankful. And we have other groups like friends out there. And uh, I, a year or so ago, I was in the, uh, on an airplane. I haven't been on an airplane in a while now, but uh, saw a nice uh, ad in my psychiatric journal from the Stuttering, Stuttering Foundation of America. And I reached out to Jane Frazier and I thanked her for that. All those help uh, in decreasing uh, the stigma, uh, allowing an individual to accept stuttering and then to move on and to have that individual choice as to what their journey will be, um, the uh, what that may be, and if that's going to be treatment with speech therapy or uh, support groups, or if that's going to be uh, if they have uh, issues that they feel they need to address through uh, medications. We want to have all those options there, just like anyone with the treatment of generalized anxiety disorder or uh, major depressive disorder has. They can seek care through psychotherapy, through medications, through uh, support groups, uh, or nothing at all. You know, we want to allow that individual individualization of that choice of uh, treatment and have those different tools out there. If you'll permit me just one last question. Sure, please do, Peter. Yeah. yeah, Thank you. So in addition to targeting dopamine activity, in the article you and your colleagues published yesterday, you wrote, another potential therapeutic target for medications is the modification of lysosomal storage. So I thought that was exciting. And you sort of dropped that and then went on. So I'm curious, what do you mean by that? Well, okay. So that was based on Drana's work. And we have to see where that may go. Uh, I know he's closed his lab since then. So I just put that out there that that could potentially be a target. I'm not working on anything with that. I'm not sure anybody is. It's a little bit distant to whatever else I've seen uh, in stuttering, at least from the medication. Uh, the dopamine story comes through. There are uh, two, uh, now three studies looking at the dopamine uh, genes involved in stuttering. Uh, it, it, it fits with the neuroimaging data that we have. I know uh, Su Wan Chang has, has linked some data to 
what uh, Dr. Drina came up with. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm yeah. sorry to cut in, but just remind listeners what we're talking about. So, so what is the excitement or interest in lysosomal storage? Well, Dennis Drina found that those genes could be playing a role in the pathogenesis of stuttering. Of course, ultimately, the idea behind doing uh, work with genetics is to eventually develop a therapeutic around that or at least understand that a little bit more. So that could be a target. I'm not aware of anyone doing that active work. I know uh, Dr. Drena was uh, looking at a, a mouse model as well, but um, I, I'm not aware of any further research going on there. I want to mention that uh, and that um, comprehensive review that we wrote uh, that for others who read it, that that could potentially be a target. I'm not aware of any candidate compound that uh, is being investigated for stuttering in that mechanism of action. Hmm. So I'm in the process of scheduling Dr. Drena to come back on Stutter Talk, and we just got the NIH approval to do that. So I'm going to bring up... um, what you wrote here, just curious where he now, I know he, um, he's not big on talking about possible treatments that's outside of his realm, but uh, yeah. I'm curious what, yeah, what perfect. he thinks. So, yeah, that's yeah, great. It, it, it can't, it can't hurt to ask him. So sure. are there any last words you have for the Stutter Talk listeners, Dr. McGuire? Well, Peter, I want to thank you. It's great to have you back hosting Stutter Talk. Uh, I want to thank you for the uh, uh, support you give the stuttering the stuttering community, uh, you you help us in uh, decreasing uh, the stigma uh, by improving uh, the education, the knowledge of for individuals who stutter and for those uh, who are friends of the stuttering community. I appreciate it very much. I uh, we're going to keep going forth. Um, as we said, that uh, acceptance and acceptance, acceptance of stuttering and acceptance of treatment are not mutually uh, mutually exclusive, uh, and uh, we will continue to go forth here uh, at the University of California Riverside uh, in partners uh, with other universities and research centers around the country and around the globe uh, to help people who stutter. I thank you for allowing us uh, this time to talk about our latest research and where we intend to go. And I hope to be back with you uh, in a year uh, with some positive results from some of our new studies. We are looking forward to it. Thank you, Dr. Gerald McGuire. 